So uh, we're going to have Todd uh, Magerly, spelled M-O, uh, but somehow pronounced Magerly. Um, he's going to come up and he's going to be speaking. Todd, if you don't know Todd, Todd has been a part of our church for a while. He's at Asbury Seminary right now, and when he comes back uh, next winter, he's going to be uh, a pastor with me here at this church. And so anytime he's on break, I like to torture him, and um, he has a chance to share with us. Uh, a sermon. Alrighty. Testing, testing. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Sounds like it. All right. They teach you many things at seminary, but never enough to make the nervousness of public speaking go away. Um, so if the Lord ever stirs you to step up one day, like my brother Adam does here, just know that you're not alone in that nervousness. Well, as Sean said, um, my name is Todd Megerly. Um, I see a lot of new faces in the congregation these days. Perhaps no wonder, it's been about a year since I was here last. Uh, it's good to see you all. I probably haven't had a chance to meet all of you yet, uh, so please do track me down uh, if you find me here in the aisles or during the uh, introvert nightmare meeting time. Uh, after worship, uh, would love to get to know you. Uh, it'll take a while with the names, I'm slow with that, but I would like to get to know all the new faces at some point here uh, while I'm in town. Um, we're going to be continuing our series here that Sean started a couple weeks ago on the Catechism, which is a long-standing Christian tradition that has sort of fallen out of popularity, at least within the Protestant church, uh, and if it still exists, it's kind of a less formal thing than it once was. But we're going to continue that uh, today. Uh, and uh, we're going to be focusing on an area of the catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Shorter meaning that it only has 100 or so points. Uh, that focuses largely around the person and the purposes of Jesus Christ. Questions including things like, oh, hold on now, let me coordinate the slides while I'm doing this. And, aha! Questions that include things like, who is the redeemer of God's elect? How did Christ, being the son of God, become a man? What offices does Christ execute as our redeemer? How does Christ execute the office of prophet? How does he execute the office of priest? How does he execute the office of king? And what did Christ's humiliation consist of? His humiliation that's an interesting question, I find. Uh, glorified, for sure. Triumphant, absolutely. Crucified and risen, hallelujah, yes and amen. But humiliated. We don't often think of God in terms of getting humiliated. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit here today. Uh, but first, I'd like to begin in prayer. So if you'd bow your heads with me. Father God, we, we come before you grateful to have a place to gather uh, whether it is raining or shining outside, hot or cold, we have this space, uh, this comfortable place, clean and secure to gather and pursue you, Lord, without fear of persecution, God, in the comfort uh, and the company of fellow believers, God. Um, help us to never take those things for granted, Lord. We know that that is not the case for everybody in the world. Make us good stewards of those kinds of gifts in our life, Lord. Speak to us, uh, Lord, your will and your purpose, Lord. Whatever I say here today, Father God, I pray that it would be your Holy Spirit that speaks most clearly, uh, that it would be your word and your truth that comes to rest in our hearts uh, as we head back out into the world, into our homes, into our places of work uh, and ministry, Father God, that your word would grow within us and prosper. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in May of 2022, astronomers announced an extraordinary discovery. They claimed they had pierced the veil of darkness and dust at the center of our Milky Way galaxy to capture the first picture of what they refer to as the gentle giant. The gentle giant is a supermassive black hole, a trapdoor in space-time through which the equivalent of four million suns have been dispatched to eternity, leaving behind only their gravity and violently bent space and time. The image, released in six simultaneous news conferences in Washington and around the globe, showed a lumpy donut of radio emissions framing empty space. Oohs and ahs broke out at a meeting with the press when, and I'm going to butcher this name, forgive me, Friol Uzel of the University of Arizona displayed what she called the first direct image of the gentle giant in the center of our galaxy. She added the following. I met this black hole 20 years ago and have loved it and tried to understand it ever since. But until now, we didn't have a direct picture of it. In 2019, the same team captured an image of the black hole in a different galaxy. One astronomers, astronomers described in this way, we have seen what we thought was once unseeable. Now what in the world does a black hole have to do with the ancient tradition of the catechism or the person or the purpose of Jesus Christ? Well, I'd say in a word, uh, mystery. There's a tremendous amount of mystery in our faith. And I don't know if you're like me, but I don't much care for mystery. I'd rather have more answers and more clarity, especially around the things in my life that are important to me, like my immortal soul, for instance. I'd like there to be less mystery around the disposition of my immortal soul and particularly around the one who sits in judgment over that soul. I think sometimes one of the greatest challenges of our faith is the mystery of a divine God, a Trinitarian God, who from the outset is doing things that make no sense to us, like being three people and one person at the same time. Or a Christ who is simultaneously divine and human. It's hard to grapple with that. We can yes and amen it in church, but then to go home and try to relate with something that wildly different from ourselves is really challenging. I appreciate this area of the catechism because of its focus on Jesus Christ, and in particular, his humanity. Humiliation is not something I tend to attribute with the experience of a divine God who can never be wrong and never be fooled and never be tricked. But it is a very common and relatable human experience. And it is in that humanity of Jesus Christ that we are given, I think, something to hold on to, something to wrap our hearts and our heads around, to help us in the challenge of the mystery of relating to an unhuman God. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Uh, more than that, more than being our Savior and our Redeemer, Jesus offers us our best and most relatable insight into the nature and character of that Trinitarian God. And when we find ourselves encountering questions and difficulties in life that challenge our ability to relate to God, that make God seem unrelatable, we might instead ask ourselves, well, what is Jesus like? For the past seven or so years, I have worked uh, in a software company that works primarily with schools in the public education system. And as a result of that work, I've come to know many teachers. And that is some real hard work that does not pay particularly well. I assure you, some of you in this congregation actually do that work, and we thank you for it. 
The particular work that we do was started by a, a, a school administrator who's a believer who during my interview with him told me he really just wanted to bring God's heart for discipleship into the public schooling system. So that is an awesome way to start an interview. But the particular way he wanted to go about doing it was to try and minimize all the paperwork. As you might imagine, the public school system has a lot of regulation. There are a lot of laws and a lot of rules, and you don't get paid unless you conform to these rules. So there's a lot of paperwork and entire teams dedicated to making sure that you have conformed to the state and federal requirements for the public school system. And so this Christian leader wanted to minimize the amount of paperwork that administrators were having to do and maximize the amount of time that they could spend discipling their teachers and likewise empower their teachers to spend more time with their students and less time with the paperwork. I'm not a salesperson, but I work shoulder to shoulder with salespeople. And so I hear the stories of what it's like to try and sell a product like ours. <clears throat> and one of the most immediate and consistent pushbacks we get is the fear of being judged. So formal evaluations in the education system literally means somebody shows up in your classroom, perhaps unexpected, and stands there with a clipboard and starts grading you as a teacher and judging you. You can imagine, even if you haven't taught, how intimidating that might be, especially if you're not on tremendous terms with your supervisor. Uh, if you have a sense that this person is always out to get you or just looking for an excuse to fire you, the moment they step into the room and start paying close attention to what you're doing, that's a difficult moment to be in. And I think in this we find our first question that Christ's story can help to answer. Is God for us or is God against us? I'd like to read a few stories to you out of the Bible today that speak to the character and the nature of God in this point. From John chapter 8, uh, verse 3 onwards. This is the story of the woman who was being condemned by a crowd for adultery, and they were about to stone her. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, he commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. I think it's clear in that that they already started to know the character of Jesus. They figured he'd want to have mercy, and they wanted to trap him in it. If he said, no, no, that's not what the law says, they'd jump on him for denying the law. If he claimed that he was greater than the law or had greater authority, again, they would jump all over him. But instead, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up, turned to them, and said, Let any one of you who is without your own sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, forgive me for nerding out for a moment. Uh, perhaps as a part of the distorting effect of higher academia, I have started to play chess again. Uh, in my dorms is one of my pastimes, and I love the strategy of chess. I'm terrible at it. I'm not good at all. I almost never win. But I love the mindset of thinking several moves ahead and trying to outposition your opponents. And one of my favorite things is to retreat by attacking. Uh, I love to, instead of backing my king away from someone who's trying to check me, instead advance some other piece to threaten them so that they can't pay attention to my king anymore. And here I think we see Jesus as a master tactician. Rather than standing up and saying, never mind all that business about the law, and rather than saying, I'm greater than the law, and jeopardizing himself in front of the religious authorities, he instead retreats by attacking and says, you know what? I invite any one of you 
who is without your own sin to be the first to cast a stone at this woman. And surprise, surprise, it turns out, not a one of them is qualified to be that first person. And they all know it. And they all step away and retreat. Continuing on in the passage, at this, those who heard what he had said began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up again, turned to her and asked, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What is Jesus like? Another moment with Jesus. This time, uh, a story you're probably well familiar with. The woman at the well. This is from John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the... And I'm just realizing I have been tardy. Forgive me. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came down to the town of Samaria, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman then said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't ever get thirsty again. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you're currently with isn't one of them. What you have just said is quite true, sir, the woman said. I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will gather, will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. Now, I read that extensively for a reason. It's because nowhere in this particular passage do we find the sort of tender, loving statement that he made uh, in the woman of John 8, 3. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life in sin. Instead, he kind of lays her story out bare and calls out her brokenness and her sin and kind of just lets it hang there. And if we, having not been there to see his eyes or experience his presence, look at that on the surface, we might think, that's kind of harsh, Jesus. What, what's that all about? I think we have to look instead to the woman. She's going to tell us what it was like, what kind of person 
Jesus is like, who could lay out all of her sins and the things that ostracized her from her community and still make her feel love. Continuing in verse 39, we find that many of the Samaritans of her city from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. I don't know if you can imagine that for a moment, like maybe if you've done anything in your life that you're grateful you didn't have to go to court for. Imagine that you did, and you stood before the judge, and he or she proclaimed in detail every crime that you had committed. And somehow, after having done that, instead of feeling ashamed or condemned, you ran out of the courtroom singing the praises of that judge. I mean, that's a wild kind of a love. What kind of a presence? What is the look in the eyes of the person who can say, I see everything wrong about you, and send you into your city proclaiming with joy? The Messiah has come. But that is what Jesus is like. Associated, <clears throat> Jesus also associated with many people who his community and his fellow leaders and upstanding Jewish citizens would never have associated with. This too represents his character. He spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes, with violent zealots, and all kinds of other people who the neighboring rabbis and Pharisees would not have been caught dead around and often scolded him for being around. What else gets in the way of our faith? What else might we be assured in Christ by looking at his story? Well, I have found it to be the case that it is better to grumble before the Lord than to have no dialogue with God at all. And I am often reassured that God would rather hear an honest frustration uh, than a false piety. One of my most consistent grumblings before the Lord is that he gave me five senses with which to perceive reality around me. And then he seems to like to stand right about here, just outside the peripheral of anything that I can sense or directly detect. While I have become so certain of the reality of God that I've literally altered the trajectory of my life and walked away from everything that was familiar and known in pursuit of seminary and of life, God help me, standing up in front of people and talking, it's still a problem for me that I have these five senses, my sight and my hearing and smell, with which to perceive all of you and the reality of your presence with me. But I can't quite perceive God that way. So it, I think, is no wonder that we might, if you feel like I, find ourselves feeling a little bit distant from God. And while I cannot offer you some kind of horse and pony trick where I snap my finger and make the incarnation of Christ appear before you, I think we can find encouragement in what he has found significant enough to say repeatedly to us in his word. The word of God is a precious collection of instruction and story and history, poetry and truth and promise, but it's a limited collection. There are things that we don't get to see in the word. And so it's all the more peculiar to me when God repeats a thing again and again and again. That's gotta be important for God. And his promise to be near us is one of those things. Speaking again of the incarnation of the human Christ, that's probably the most obvious demonstration of that desire, that he would not only be near us in spirit, for God is spirit, but that he would take on flesh and be near us in experience, that he would literally walk in our shoes and be with us as a human person. But before that, his coming was prophesied. It was intended in advance in the book of Isaiah, uh, where we find him being called Emmanuel, which translated literally means God with us. And even before that prophecy in Isaiah, we find all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, in God's plan A 
the Garden of Eden, if you want to know what God desires for all of us, read the first couple of chapters of Genesis again. This is before sin. This is before the mistakes of humanity and the brokenness of the world. God creates a lush and thriving garden. And then, having created Adam and Eve, he walks in the garden with them. That has been his intention all along. And going to the other end of the book, into the book of Revelation, as Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom with us here on earth, to dwell with us again, we see the fulfillment of that intention and that desire. It's difficult, I admit, to adjust to a relationship that's like no other we have in this life, to make peace with God's absence from our five senses most of the time. But we might start that process by believing what God has said to us throughout the word about his intentions towards us and his desire to be near us. And remember that this is a relationship like no other. So it's going to look and feel different by its very nature. What else gets in the way of our ability to relate to God? And how else might Jesus' humanity draw us nearer to that? I'm doing great with these slides. Please disregard. <laughs> so one of the things I've discovered that I love while being away at school, uh, though I'm a slow reader and I struggle to stay on top of all the homework, I love philosophy. I love thinking about how we think. Uh, not just finding what seems reasonable, but asking why does it seem reasonable at all? How do we arrive at these conclusions? And because I'm starting to love philosophy more and more, I find myself in more arguments uh, with people, my fellow students and my professors. One of the great joys of seminary is you get to stay after class and argue with your professor if you think they're wrong, and sometimes they'll argue with you if they think you're wrong. And having gotten into more arguments in the last four years than the previous 20 or so, I find myself fascinated by some of the tactics that we use in debate, particularly those that make it clear that the person we're talking to no longer wants to be talking to us. The ways that we try to eject one another from a conversation. One of the most consistent forms of ejecting a person from a conversation usually begins with something like, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what that's like. You don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. You haven't walked in my shoes. You don't know. It's an attempt to disqualify the other person, and I've learned. I try to be gracious in those moments, but I feel like if you felt that way, maybe you shouldn't have asked me what I think to begin with. But nevertheless, I try to be gracious and, and relate to the reality behind that. I mean, other than just being obnoxious, which some people seem to be, there's a real human and relatable fear, for lack of a better word. It's hard to relate to somebody who hasn't walked where you've walked, particularly around areas of trauma, of pain. If someone hasn't suffered your pain, it's hard to stand by while they tell you what you ought to be doing about your pain. If they haven't lost what you've lost, it's hard to receive a word of direction or encouragement or teaching from them to tell you how to respond to that. It's very natural to want to say, how do you know? You haven't been here. You haven't lost that. You haven't felt this. On what basis are you going to presume to tell me what I ought to be doing? But here we have in Jesus' life, in his human life, one suffering and one pain and one anguish and one loss after another, after another, after another. And while I do not celebrate the pain of his life, boy, is it relatable. I want to go through just a few of them here. Some verses there for reference. I encourage you to look them up if, if one of these key words kind of <clears throat> speaks to you. But consider Jesus' life story. Have you ever been persecuted 
Have you been bullied? Have you been actively pursued and abused by others? Jesus knows what that's like, not just in his divine knowing, but he experienced it firsthand as a human being. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you taken someone into your trust, into your innermost circle? Have you loved them, given yourself to them, only to have them turn on you? Jesus understands that. He knows exactly what that feels like. Have you given everything for someone you loved, sacrificed for them, bled for them, endured complete injustice for them? And did you then find that they discarded you and rejected you and turned their back on you? Jesus knows what that's like. Have you been falsely accused? Have others spoken terrible lies against you? Have you suffered because of those accusations? Jesus has been there. He knows exactly what that's like. Jesus was a refugee. He was a stranger. He was homeless. Jesus was tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to lose the ones he loves. Jesus was beaten and mocked and abandoned. Jesus gets you. He knows firsthand some of the worst pains and griefs of this life. He knows what it is to sacrifice everything. And he did it for you and for me and for all of us. As we explore these aspects of the nature and the ways of Jesus, prompted and guided by the questions of the catechism, we might do well to recognize this additional detail. You heard it from Philippians 2 earlier. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in, huma in humility, value others above yourself not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider that equality with God to be something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death. That stands out as particularly poignant to me today. And one of the reoccurring things I think about a lot at seminary is what it means to have biblical expectations. I think a lot of the frustrations of my own faith journey were self-inflicted. I somehow, through popular evangelical teachings or, well, it wouldn't have been Twitter, but reductive statements that don't quite encapsulate the truth of the word, I came to believe some things and expect some things that the word didn't promise me didn't tell me. And when those things surprisingly did not come to pass, I got very frustrated. And so I've become very interested in what actual biblical expectations look like, what the actual person and the purpose and the ways of our Savior Jesus looks like. And oftentimes, it is exactly the opposite of what the world is trying to do. Think about some of the commercials that you see in this day and age, how consistently they encourage you to glorify yourself, to seek yourself, your way, your truth, to live your best life. You've earned it, after all. You deserve it. You're entitled. <clears throat> How different does that sound from what we just read about the way of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2? The way of Jesus is often simply incompatible with the values of this world. So what is Jesus like? Jesus is for the other. He is with the other, giving himself for the sake of the other showing mercy to the guilty, 
forgiveness to those who persecute him, and love to those who hate him. That is what Jesus is like. So there's another long-standing tradition in our faith. It's actually a category of traditions called sacraments, sacred traditions. And one of them that we celebrate every Sunday is communion, or for our more Orthodox brothers and sisters, the Eucharist. We do this because Jesus instructed us to, and we do it as he taught us in remembrance of him, of that sacrifice, of that nearness, the way that his body was given to us, broken for our sake, and that his blood was shed for our salvation. And the way we do it here, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus or you want to start today, we invite you to the Lord's table. Just step down the middle row here and take one of the crackers and dip it in the juice. And then we'll hang on to it and go up the outer aisles until everybody has it. Uh, And then together as a family, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. So please feel free to come forward. Well, Father God, we pause here um, to let this moment intrude upon us as it should. God, we pause to be mindful of the extent to which you have been willing to go, to be near us, to draw us unto you, to restore us to you, Father God. And we thank you for this gift, for this sacrifice, Father God. 
pray that you would help us to better understand these mysteries, God, that we might love you more completely. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I just want to invite you all to stand here before we take off here today and, and remind you, if, if you need prayer for anything, uh, we'd love to stand with you. Uh, please feel free to come forward. Um, if you need healing, if you just need someone to listen, uh, if God is feeling distant and you wish he weren't so, uh, please feel free to come forward. We'd love to pray with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Lord, turn his face towards you and be gracious towards you and walk with you, near you, into the world outside those doors. Amen.